Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. Great to be in church tonight. It just feels good, doesn't it? God is good to us, and uh, I feel the touch of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, let's grab them. Uh, they're having a little technical trouble tonight. I'm not sure if they're going to be able to get our slides working. So it's a bad night to forget your Bible. So grab it, get it close. If someone next to you has a Bible, just kind of scoot a little closer to them. And uh, we're going to get into the Word of the Lord. Before we do, I, I know we've already prayed, but uh, I'd like us to take just a moment here and have special prayer for our pastor. He flew to St. Louis this morning, and he's going to be in meetings there all week long. And he's going to be representing the Oneness Pentecostal uh, theology in a room full of approximately 900 Trinitarian preachers and teachers, all of whom have PhDs and master's degrees. And, uh, and so it's going to be a little bit like Daniel going into the lion's den. But we know what happens if you have God on your side when you go into a lion's den. And, uh, and I, I was telling the prayer group last night, as a young man, as a teenager, uh, pastor used to do that kind of thing all the time. And uh, I would often travel with him to these meetings and, and just kind of be a fly on the wall. And I can tell you something about our pastor. He is exactly the same in those settings as he is right here on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night. He preaches the same with the same anointing, the same enthusiasm, and he's not ashamed of the gospel. And, uh, and so I, I feel like as, as a church family, it'd be appropriate for us to just lift up our hands and lift our pastor up in prayer, shall we? Lord, in the name of Jesus, I cover my pastor right now in prayer. Lord, I pray that you'd go before him. I pray that you would give him wisdom, Lord. I pray that you would give him the right words. I pray that there would be an anointing, Lord, in the midst of adversity, God. Lord, we magnify you, and we know that you are able. You are able to keep your people and to protect them, O oh God. We glorify you. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Well, praying feels good, doesn't it? Did you feel the atmosphere change? What a good thing. I want to get into the word of the Lord, and uh, I'd like to direct your attention to Matthew 5 and 19. And, uh, and you can be seated as you just kind of turn there. Uh, I'd like to talk to us tonight about what I'm entitling common fallacies that Christians believe. Common fallacies that Christians believe. And I have four of them that I'd like us to look at uh, briefly tonight. And I've purposely chosen the word fallacies. Uh, rather than using the word lies, because a fallacy is different than a lie. A fallacy can be simply an error or a mistake or just a viewpoint of Scripture or doctrine that is simply not true. It doesn't always mean that someone is maliciously doing it. Sometimes it, it's just a misunderstanding of Scripture, uh, but it is still a fallacy. And Right doctrine is incredibly important in the life of a believer. 
Let me say that again and give you a chance to say amen. Right doctrine is incredibly important in the life of a believer. And uh, I, I've, I'm approaching this subject from the perspective of apostolics. If I was to talk about common fallacies that Baptists believe, uh, I would have a whole different list. If I were to approach it from common fallacies that Catholics believe, I'd have a whole different list. But I'm looking at things and concerns that I have within our own apostolic movement. How many want to have right doctrine? How many want to rightly divide the word of truth? And, and some of these things might seem trivial to you. It might seem like a small thing. But every small false doctrine has large ramifications in your life. Now, many of these things that we're going to look at tonight are things that might seem trivial, but in the end, they affect your walk with God, your relationship with God, and how you serve God. And so it's important. I, I was thinking today about how it, Solomon said that just a small fly in the ointment or what we would say uh, in, in American vernacular, in the perfume, uh, perverts the perfume. And small things, little things, can destroy the goodness of an entire thing. I, I read something kind of humorous the other day. You probably heard this, but I, I really liked it. It said, if you don't think small things matter, you've never been in bed with a mosquito. It's a, now, if you're in Mississippi, Brother Grady, Mosquitoes are like woodpeckers. You know, they're huge. But mosquitoes are relatively small, but they can make your life miserable. Amen? Small things can distort the way you view the Bible. It can distort the way you walk with God. And so we're looking at common fallacies that Christians believe. And the first fallacy that I'd like to look at tonight is the Pharisee fallacy. Can you say the Pharisee fallacy? And uh, I gave you the wrong text to begin. Uh, let me redirect you to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. All right, they got it working. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Why don't we give the sound room a hand? They do a great job. And our media team. The Pharisee fallacy. Luke 12 and 1. Brother Jinx saved the day. That's how Brother Jinx does, isn't it? He saves the day. Luke 12 and 1 says this, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? Which is hypocrisy. Matthew 23 and 25, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. Everyone said the outside. But within, look at your neighbor and say the inside, the inside are full of extortion and excess. Skipping down to verse 26. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Even so ye also outwardly. Do you hear this discussion? Jesus is talking about inward and outward righteousness. Everyone said righteousness. This is a very important conversation. And he said, so you have... You appear outwardly righteous unto men, but within or on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy. How many are noticing that common theme of hypocrisy? 
You're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Now, this was not true. Now, in the Old Testament, the religious leaders and, and the elite, they were known for what? They murdered the prophets. How many prophets were killed because they simply prophesied the word of the Lord? And, and the Pharisees were, were going around and saying, if we had lived in those days, we would never have had the blood of the prophets on our hands. We're far too spiritual for that. And yet, when the Messiah... God manifest in the flesh when he walked among them, when he healed the sick among them, when he raised the dead in the midst of the people. It was the Pharisees who rose up in opposition to Jesus. And of course, we know that it was the Sadducees and the Pharisees that ultimately lobbied for Jesus to be put to death. And so this was hypocrisy at its finest. On the one hand, they were saying we would never persecute the prophets. And then the Messiah comes and they persecute the Messiah. So what is the single largest problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees? Anyone have a guess? It was hypocrisy. It was the fact that they said one thing and they did another thing. They did one thing outwardly, but they had, uh, they had unrighteousness on the inside. And so what Jesus was really addressing here is the problem of people who are outwardly holy and inwardly unholy. And Jesus was saying that that is incomplete holiness. True holiness is right on the outside and it's right on the inside at the same time. Jesus was not saying that outward holiness does not matter. And here's where the problem comes in. How many people here tonight, uh, maybe, maybe it'll be hard for us to be honest, but how many of you here tonight have ever been accused of being a Pharisee? Yes, I have been accused of being a Pharisee. In fact, one of the first things that people will start doing when they, they tell you, uh, that they don't like holiness is they'll start accusing you of being pharisaical you pharisee and and people in fact growing up i remember one of the dirtiest words that you could call a christian was to call them a pharisee that was kind of like a mean thing to say to a christian you pharisee and what they really meant by that and what people still mean by it today if you believe in any kind of outward holiness if you believe that god wants us to dress modestly, which the Bible is very clear that we're supposed to dress modestly. And yet, if you stand on that truth of the word of God, people will call you a Pharisee, but it's a fallacy. If you believe that you're supposed to be careful with how you talk and the things that you say, many people will say you're nothing but a Pharisee. And, and yet, that is a fallacy because God cares about the outward things. God cares about outward holiness. That'd be a great place to say amen. God has never told the Pharisees that the outward does not matter. What Jesus was saying to the Pharisees 
is that the outward and the inward man matters at the same time. It was their hypocrisy that Jesus had a problem with. It was not their outward righteousness. In fact, uh, Jesus himself fasted. Can I get an amen? Jesus himself prayed. Can I get an amen? Jesus himself tithed. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Jesus himself gave offerings to the temples. He went into the temple. He was faithful to the Sabbath. Jesus was faithful to the law of Moses. And, and so Jesus was not coming against the fact that they had outward holiness. He was coming against the fact that they were not, they were not measuring up inwardly. And so we have a problem in our culture with people who view the Pharisees the wrong way. You have to understand, I think, to really understand the context of the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, were two different classes of religious leaders. The Pharisees were uh, poor, uh, the Sadducees were wealthy, and the Sanhedrin was made up of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sanhedrin was uh, a, a governing body. It would be much like our Supreme Court today. It would be like a judicial system. The Pharisees were more like preachers. They were more like just common leaders. They weren't necessarily politicians. And they weren't as wealthy as the Sadducees were. The Sadducees were very wealthy, influential men, and they were more political than the Pharisees were. The Sadducees were in league with the Roman government. Remember that in the days of Jesus, uh, the Jews were, they were in basically in captivity to Rome. But when Rome would take over a, a nation, Rome would allow them to keep their own customs and to keep their own religious beliefs within certain parameters. So you could worship your God as long as you weren't trying to overthrow the Roman emperor. You could keep your customs as long as you weren't going against Rome and trying to push Rome out of power. And so the Sadducees were allowed uh, to have governing authority amongst their own people as long as they did it in submission to Rome. And the Sadducees worked very hard to maintain this power. And the Pharisees became the men that people would go to to get the letter of the law. The problem that the Pharisees had was that not only would they uh, teach the word of God, teach the law of Moses, but often they would add to the law of Moses. And they would, they would add things to it that were, uh, that were not what God originally intended. And Jesus had a real problem with this. If you study the scripture, you can find dozens and dozens of places where Jesus had very harsh confrontations with the Pharisees. And, and this is important to understand because you need to know why Jesus had a problem with the Pharisees. And it always came down to the inward hidden parts of their hearts. We need our hearts to be pure tonight. We need our hearts to be pure tonight. But what you cannot do is allow the culture to tell you that because you believe in outward holiness that is based soundly on the word of God, that you're just like a Pharisee. When people start trying to tell you that, you need to understand they don't understand what Jesus was trying to say to the Pharisees. Let me take you to the next slide and I'll prove it to you. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19. Whosoever therefore 
shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, listen very carefully, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I realize that Jesus was bringing it a time of grace, but Jesus was making it very clear that obedience to the law was not the problem that he had with the Pharisees. His problem was always what? Hypocrisy. Everyone said hypocrisy. So a modern-day Pharisee is not someone who believes in outward righteousness. A modern-day Pharisee is not someone who takes the Word of God very seriously. It's not someone who calls out sin. Have you ever tried to call out sin lovingly and been called a Pharisee? I certainly have. That's not what a Pharisee was. It's not someone who worships or does something spiritual publicly. In other words, I've had people say, well, Christians who pray in public are pharisaical because one of the things that Jesus uh, was critical of the Pharisees about is the fact that they made a big show of praying and fasting in public. The problem that Jesus had was not that they prayed publicly. The problem was that they had pride in their heart and they wanted people to see them praying publicly. They wanted everyone to know what they were doing. But my goodness, if you're about to get in a wreck and you're, and you're driving down the road and you got a car full of people, by all means, you ought to pray in the name of Jesus. If you're, if you're out in a street corner somewhere and someone's sick, you just pray in the name of Jesus. You're not doing it to be seen of men. You're doing it because there is power in the name of Jesus. If you're at school and, 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 and you need to call on the name of Jesus and you're tempted, I don't care what the politicians tell you. You pray in the name of Jesus. You're not doing it to be seen of men. You're doing it because you know that your strength lies in Jesus. A modern-day Pharisee is not someone who is passionate about holiness. Everyone said holiness, sin, and separation from the world. A modern-day Pharisee is someone who is faithful to outward righteousness, but not inward righteousness. Someone who adds to the word of God and or is unfaithful to the intent of the law of God, or they're spiritually tone deaf. They, uh, of all people, of all the people in the world that should have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, it should have been the Pharisees. If anyone should have been able to know this is God manifest in the flesh, it should have been the Pharisees. They were the teachers. They had read the Old Testament that prophesied that he would be wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. They had seen all of the prophecies. They should have known that he would have been born in Bethlehem. All of the prophecies were there. The Old Testament prophesied that he would be a man of sorrows. They should have recognized immediately, and yet they were spiritually tone deaf, and they were trying to present themselves as spiritual giants. That was a Pharisee. A modern-day Pharisee is someone who arrogantly calls out sin in others but ignores their own sin. It's someone who shouts on Sunday and curses on Monday. It's someone who is outwardly clean but inwardly dirty. 
How many want to be holy on the outside and holy on the inside at the same time? Amen. Praise the Lord. And so it's important. Don't let the world intimidate you and tell you that just because you believe in biblical holiness that you're a Pharisee. You should reject it because it's a fallacy. Amen. I'll take you to the next slide. And this one is very, very, very important. It's a big one. And I call it the God only looks at the heart fallacy. Anybody ever come against this one before? Well, God... You, you know, I know that I'm I know that I'm not doing right outwardly, but that doesn't matter because God looks at my heart. We've all bumped into this one, haven't we? It doesn't matter that I'm half naked. God only looks at the heart. Glory to God. Anybody ever bumped up against this? This is a big one. And I see this in our apostolic churches and we need to kick it out in Jesus name because this is a this is a very insidious and dangerous false doctrine. God does indeed look at the heart, but God does more than just look at the heart. Amen? Now, let me take you to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. And this, this is the verse that people are quoting. They usually quote the verse incorrectly. One of the, one of the most dangerous things about all false doctrines is that they, they typically take a scripture and they take a little portion of it and then they misuse it. And that's where almost all false doctrine comes from. So most people misquote this verse and they take it out of context. But let's read the whole verse together, shall we? But the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So you need to understand what was happening. Here is where the prophet Samuel, uh, he had been instructed of the Lord uh, to anoint a new king over Israel. Saul had fallen into rebellion against God and, and fallen out of favor with God. And, and so God said, I'm going to raise up a new king and I'm going to anoint a new king over Israel. And so he sent Samuel to the house of Jesse. Jesse had uh, several sons. Uh, David was, uh, was the youngest of them. And, and so when Samuel gets to Jesse's house, he sees uh, these older brothers, and they're tall, they're strong, they're warriors, they're impressive looking, they look like kings. And, and so immediately Samuel, in his, in his flesh, thinks surely one of these boys are the next king of Israel. Remember, the Bible is very clear that Saul was a big man. He was a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. When you looked at Saul, he looked like a king. He looked like someone that you would want to be your king. And, and so when, when Samuel goes to Jesse's house, he's looking for someone that looks like a king. And what God was saying in this context is, Samuel, I want you to understand that I'm not looking for the same qualities that you're looking for in a man. I'm not just looking for a tall man. I'm not just looking for a strong man. I'm looking for a man after my own heart. I'm looking for somebody who has a heart that will serve me. Because we've already seen how it worked out with Saul. He looked like a king. He walked like a king. He talked like a king. And he's already turned his back on me. 
I'm looking for somebody out in the shepherd's field who knows how to worship and who knows how to dance and, and who knows how to trust me in all things. I'm looking for somebody who will kill giants with a slingshot and a stone and won't just depend on a sword and a spear. I'm looking for somebody who knows how to enter into my presence with thanksgiving and into my courts with praise. I'm looking for somebody who loves me with all of their heart. And so God, God said, listen, you might look on the outside and you might see someone who looks strong, but I see someone who's backsliding on the inside. I see someone on the outside. They may look like they have it all together, but I know on the inside, I know on the inside, they're not everything that they should be. And so I do more than just look on the outside. I look at the heart. Can I just pause and preach for a minute? God wants us to do more than just dance. And if you've been around me long enough, you know I believe in dancing and shouting and, and I believe in running the aisles. In fact, I think we ought to do more of it. But in the end, God is looking at more than just our dance. God is looking at what we do in the secret places. God is looking at how we conduct ourselves when we're all by ourselves, out with the sheep in a pasture. God is worried about our prayer lives and he's worried about our thought lives and he's worried about the condition of our heart. It's more than just what we do on Sunday. It's what we do on Monday. And that is what God was talking about. God was saying that I look at the outward and the inward at the same time. I'm not impressed by outward things. If you're dancing on Sunday and in adultery on Monday, God's not impressed by that. If you're praying on Tuesday and backsliding on Wednesday, God's not impressed by that. If you can get up and move a whole crowd with preaching, but you're backslidden on the inside, God is not impressed by that. You might can impress your neighbor. You might can impress me. But if your life is full of sin, you are not impressing God. Because God looks at more than the outward appearance. God is looking at the hidden places of the heart. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Take us to the next slide, brother. First Samuel 6, 7, I believe, is one of the most mishandled scriptures in the Bible. The text is not saying that God doesn't care at all about the outward appearance. That would contradict dozens of Old Testament scriptures. Let me show you a few of them very quickly. Deuteronomy 22, 5. This would be a good place for y'all to preach with me for a minute here. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Hello, is this a Pentecostal church? And, and guys, let me just pause. Sometimes we're hard on the ladies and we let you guys slip by. I'm going to preach to you for a minute. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. Now, God cannot lie and God will not contradict himself. God is the same yesterday, today and forever. God would not say he only cares about the heart and not the outward and then say explicitly, the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. And if there has ever been a more relevant topic than this scripture in today's world in a day of transgenderism and homosexuality running rampant, I'm telling you that we as the church need to preach it louder and stronger than ever before. Men, you need to be men. And women, you need to be women for the glory of God. God, God created us to be distinct, and he did it on purpose. And can I just say I'm so glad he did. Thank the Lord. 
Praise God. And so all that do so, if you put on that which pertaineth unto a man, ladies, and men, if you put on a woman's garment, all that do so. Everyone said all. They're an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Exodus 28, 42. And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness. Can I just say that God cares about modesty? Oh, I wish someone would help me right here. God cares about modesty. God cares about modesty. He always had. Leviticus 19, 28. Do not cut your bodies for the dead and do not mark your skin with tattoos. But preacher, God only cares about the heart. No, he cares about the heart and he cares about the outward at the same time. He wants you to be right inside and outside at the same time. Next slide. First Timothy 2 9. Now we're moving into the New Testament for those who want to say that God doesn't care about anything in the New Testament. God has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness. Everyone shout godliness with good works. First Corinthians eleven fourteen. doth not even nature itself teach you that if man, I'm going to preach to the men for a minute here. If a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. Someone look at your neighbor and say, we're in the New Testament right now. God cares about the outward and the inward. Go ahead. Tell him. Look him in the eye. God cares about the outward and the inward. Verse 15. But if a woman have long hair, if you read that text in all of chapter 11, you'll see that if a woman have cut hair, it is it is a shame to her. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given her for a covering Galatians 519 now the works of the flesh are manifest someone said outside works outward works and they are these adultery fornication uncleanness lasciviousness idolatry witchcraft hatred quarreling rivalry wrath strife seditions heresies envying murders drunkenness revelings and such like about these things I tell you again as I have also told you in times past that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so God cares about the heart and God cares about what we do with our bodies. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Ghost. Is this too old fashioned for us tonight? Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Ghost and God cares what we do with the inside and the outside. Let's lift our hands and pray that God would give us a fresh revelation of holiness. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that this millennial generation would receive the revelation of righteousness and holiness, God. I pray that we would love truth. I pray that we would love the word. I pray, oh God, that we would be clean inwardly and clean outwardly at the same time. Amen. Amen. I'm moving quickly. I'll take you to the next slide. This is the third fallacy, and it's what I call all traditions are evil and optional fallacy. Everyone said traditions. Traditions. Traditions is an important word, and traditions are, are something that I think many people have turned into a dirty word. 
I'm going to slow down here because this is important. Traditions are, are sometimes things that, that we have been brainwashed into believing churches have no right to have. And, and I think that one of the reasons that Pentecostals struggle with this is because certainly it's true if you look at the Catholic Church, they have traditions that are blatantly false doctrine. If you look at the Methodist Church, they use the word tradition, and they have traditions that are, that are completely contrary to the Word of God. For example, baptizing an infant child is more than just a tradition. It's a false doctrine. It's contrary to the Word of God. So they might call it a tradition. For example, if you're Catholic, and I'm not trying to offend Catholics, but if you're Catholic and you pray to the Virgin Mary, that would be completely contrary to the Word of God. And so you might call that a tradition, but it's not a tradition. It's simply false doctrine. But there are traditions that the true apostolic church, how many believe there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism? And so a truly apostolic church that is, that is in submission to the word of God can have traditions that are right and appropriate for the church to maintain and for an apostolic pastor to say, this is how we're going to operate in this church. And I, I'm afraid that we're in a generation that for everything that every preacher ever, ever says, they want to have 14,000 scriptures. And even if they have 14,000 scriptures, they're still not sure if they want to be obedient to it. And I'm going to tell you, that is not the apostolic way. That is not the way the apostolic church operated in the book of Acts and in the years following. It is right and appropriate for a pastor to be able to say, if you're going to be on my platform, you're going to wear a tie. Now, the Bible doesn't say that you have to wear a tie on the platform, but there are certain traditions that the church has a right to say, this is how we're going to do it in this church. We're going to do it this way as long as they're not contradicting the word of God. The moment they start contradicting the word of God, then they're in trouble. That's, that's a whole nother story. That's called false doctrine. But a pastor, and I'm afraid we've lost this in our generation, a pastor does have apostolic authority. All right, it's going to get quiet here, but I'm going to go ahead and preach here. A pastor does have apostolic authority. Let me show you some scriptures that, I, that support this. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, this is Paul. He said this, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the what? The traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word, everyone said by word, or our epistle. If you study this, this scripture, you'll realize that Paul is not just talking about the letters that were canonized into the Word of God. Paul was also talking about the preaching and the teaching that went forth in the local churches. And so Paul was authorizing apostolic pastoral authority. And so if a pastor says in this church, we're going to stand on this, then as long as they're in line with the Word of God, then we need to submit ourselves to apostolic authority. 
Submission is still in the Bible. Submission to apostolic authority is still in the Bible. That's all right. You can be quiet. Second Thessalonians 3 and 6 says this. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives. And here's the key. And don't follow the tradition. Everyone said tradition. They received from us. For you know that ye ought to what? Imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. If you look at the book of Joshua, uh, there's a particular story. I don't have the exact verse here where they, they said to the people, watch Joshua and do as he does. When Gideon was going in with his 300 men and he was going into battle, he instructed the men. He said, listen, I want you to watch me and do what I do. Can I just preach to some younger generation people here tonight and let you know that if you know that your pastor has a conviction and you are in direct rebellion to that, you have a spiritual problem in your life, even if you don't have 47 scriptures to back it up. Because your pastor is the watchman on the wall who is watching out for your soul. And God may show him dangers that you can't see. God might show him things that you can't see in the spirit realm. There are sometimes stances that the church has to take because the world is growing darker and darker and further and further and further away from God. You know, you may not have a Bible verse, young person, that tells you exactly what artist you're allowed to listen to and exactly what style of music you're allowed to listen to. We don't have a scripture and verse for, for every kind of book that you ought to read, but sometimes you need to trust your pastor when he says, listen, we're not going to bring that kind of entertainment into our lives. We're not going to invite that kind of temptation into our lives. We're, we're not going to pump our house full of television that's preaching homosexuality to us day and night, that's telling us abortion is okay day and night that's telling us what beauty is we're we're not going to bring magazines into our lives that tell our young people what it takes to be beautiful because god 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 tells us what is beautiful god 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 tells us what is holy god 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 tells us what is righteous and so sometimes a pastor can see that there are things that you should not be playing with. And there may not be 3,000 scripture verses, but the principle is there. And God has called your pastor to be the watchman on the wall for your soul. And he may set a tradition that says, listen, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go here. And he's doing it because he loves you. He's doing it because he was on his knees in a prayer closet. And God said, there's wolves over there and you need to stay away from them there's landmines over there and you need to stay away from them there are temptations over there that you need to stay away from there are things over there that if you start playing with it it's going to get in your spirit it's going to get a grip on your mind and parents just I'm gonna preach for a minute here and parents just because you might can handle it you have little eyes and little ears that they may not can handle what you can handle and you're gonna have to stand before God one day and answer to God and say Lord I thought it'd be okay when I pumped that into my house day and night but your children were destroyed because you would not listen to the warning voices that God had placed in your life I feel the Holy Ghost in this place right now. I feel the convicting power of the Holy Ghost. 
in this place right now. All traditions are not evil, and all traditions are not optional. In fact, many times the elders, in fact, the Bible says in one place to remove not the ancient landmarks. There are some things that you should not play with or move because you don't know why they were placed there in the first place. There are some important stances that the church has taken over the years that if you start moving them, you'll realize that it was not a fence designed to hinder your freedom, but it was placed there to protect you from dangers on the outside. And when you start removing landmarks, you are playing with fire. And certainly if you start removing them casually or arrogantly or flippantly, you're in a very, very dangerous place. Apostolic precedent, apostolic authority is not something that we should take lightly. I realize that we live in one of the most disloyal time periods in history. Loyalty is very hard to find. Uh, and I also realize that we live in a day and age where it's very hard to find leaders that we respect. When you look at politicians, uh, when you look in our culture, it's very hard to find leaders who aren't dishonest or leaders who haven't somehow, who haven't somehow disgraced uh, the authority that they have. I realize that. But listen, just because there are a few bad police officers doesn't mean that we should teach our children to hate all police officers. And just because there's a few bad preachers out there doesn't mean we shouldn't give genuine apostolic authority to genuine apostolic preachers who are faithful to the word of God. You can't throw out all respect and all loyalty because a few men dishonored a position. We need to stand firm. And one of the gravest dangers of our day is that we lose respect for apostolic authority. We need to have it. We have to have it. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul said it this way. Be followers, followers of me, even as I also am following Christ. There's apostolic precedent for following the example, the godly example of spiritual leadership. That's something that we should take very, very seriously. Paul was, of course, the one who also said that if I or an angel from heaven preach any other doctrine to you. So if I start preaching false doctrine then by all means, you've got to stay right with God. You can't fo follow a preacher into false doctrine. But if a preacher is standing on the word of the Lord, he has apostolic authority, and we ought to take it seriously. Can you say praise the Lord? All right, I'm going to take you to the next, the next fallacy, and this will be our final one. And I like this one a lot. I hear it a lot, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. Here it is. This is what I call the devil made me do it fallacy ever hear someone say that well the devil made me do it the devil made me do it i don't know how i got drunk the devil made me do it i don't even know how i got high the devil he just made me do it i hear that i hear that in churches i hear people i think the devil made me do it. i hear that all the time it's a it's not true first of all 
The devil can't make anyone do anything unless they're demon-possessed. So if you're saying the devil made you do it, you're saying you're demon-possessed. If that's true, we need to get you an altar and start praying the devil out of you in Jesus' name. And I mean, it's going to be serious. But if you're demon-possessed, then we have a real problem. So let's now, certainly, if, if you have the Holy Ghost, how many are thankful for the Holy Ghost tonight? If you have the Holy Ghost, the devil can't make you do anything. Anything. He can't even get close to you because all you've got to do is just whisper the name of Jesus and he's got to flee. Now, if you don't have the Holy Ghost, he can influence you strongly. He can mess with you pretty strong, but he can't make you do anything. Now, he can, he can manipulate you. He can, he can throw a lot of temptation in your life, and, and he can be a strong influence on you unless you open yourself up to possession. But, but if you're here tonight, if you're a child of God, if you're apostolic, if you've been baptized in Jesus' name, spoken tongues with the Holy Ghost came, the devil can't make you do anything. And that's something you ought to say praise the Lord about. Now look at Genesis 3 and 12. And the, man said the, uh, and the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Everyone said excuse number one. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Look at your neighbor and say, she's saying the devil made me do it. That's excuse number two. So the man the woman made me do it, and the woman said, the devil made me do it. All of this was a victim mentality. And let me just say this in closing. If you are a spirit-filled child of God, you should not have a victim mentality. You are not a victim in Christ Jesus. You are a victor in Christ Jesus. I said, you are not a victim in Christ Jesus. You are a victor in Christ Jesus. And you have authority. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. You can overcome any temptation through the power of the Holy Ghost. 1 John 4 and 4, stand with me and we'll read this together. And this ought to be one of the most important scriptures in your life as a believer. 1 John 4, 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because, can we say it together? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you're an overcomer tonight, can you lift your hands and just thank the Lord for the Holy Ghost? Somebody ought to stir up the Holy Ghost right now. God, I pray we'd walk in the Spirit, Lord. I pray we'd walk in the Spirit, God. Lord, I pray that we would have a victory mentality and not a victim mentality, Lord. I pray that we would understand our authority, our heritage, God. I pray that we would recognize, Lord, that demons tremble at the mention of your name. 
I pray that we would recognize that sickness trembles at the mention of your name. God, hallelujah, give us spiritual authority, I pray. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm not a victim. I'm a victor in Jesus. Amen. God bless you.